Hi, my name is Patrice Kloss, and I serve as one of the leaders of the MedTech practice at Fox Rothschild. Fox is a law firm with 950 lawyers in 70 practice areas located in offices throughout the country. Our MedTech practice is comprised of a team of attorneys immersed in the industry and who focus on serving our medical technology clients through the full life cycle of their businesses. Our group draws on an array of specialties, helping our clients navigate corporate needs for startups and growth stage companies, IP needs, human resource concerns, privacy, FDA, and more. I'm very excited to be part of the MedTech Talk Series and to be introducing this panel today featuring Inari Medical. Inari Medical is pioneering the way for treating venous diseases, especially pulmonary embolism and deep vein thrombosis. It is one of MedTech's fastest growing and most exciting companies. And in May of this year, debuted as a public company following an extraordinarily successful IPO. The panel will cover everything from the state of the industry to the culture, mission, and strategy of Inari on through to its recent IPO. The moderator of today's panel is Jeff Pardo of Gilda Healthcare. Jeff joined Gilda Healthcare in 2011 and is focusing on Gilda's investment in North America. He led the investments of Ablative Solutions, Anari Medical, Exotics Modulation Technologies, CVRX, Innova Labs, which was acquired by ResMed, BionX, which was acquired by Autobach, Vapotherm, Vesper Medical, and Ergo, where he represents Gilda as a member of the board of directors for each company. Previously, Jeff was, at part, was a partner at Spray Venture Partners, where he led investments into Interlace Medical, Solace Therapeutics, Tier Science, which was sold to J&J, and Cascade. He served on the board of Solace, Tier Science, and Cascade, and was actively involved in the Interlace and Convention Orthopedics. Jeff also served as president and CEO of Facet Solutions, a spinal implant company, focusing on treating lumbar spinal stenosis until the company was sold to Globus Medical in 2011. He also worked at Cardinal Partners as an associate, leading their investing activities in the medical device sector. Gilda Healthcare is a specialized healthcare investor managing over 1.5 billion across two fund strategies, venture and growth capital, and private equity. I'll now hand the mic off to Jeff. Thanks and enjoy the panel. Great. Welcome everybody. And welcome to the team in, in Ari. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, great, yeah. So thanks so much uh, to Patrice and Fox Rothschild for uh, uh, sponsoring this. Um, and we're excited to uh, dive into a bunch of different uh, topics today. Uh, one of the things that uh, I was thinking about last night as I was uh, watching our train wreck of a presidential uh, debate is that uh, I needed some uh, an uplifting story and being around positive and uplifting people. And uh, there's no one better to do that than folks at Inari. It's one of the best stories that I've ever had the chance to be around and one of the best group of people as well. And they're truly uh, changing the game in uh, in treating venous thrombosis. So we're very lucky today to have uh, four members of the team. My only regret is that we actually don't get to have uh, uh, the whole team because truly there's all-stars in uh, every position at Inari. But we have four 
um, of, uh, of the team here. And um, I'm sure you guys will represent well. We've got Drew Hikes starting from the left, it uh, looks like. Um, COO, we've got Bill Hoffman, CEO, sitting in the middle. Uh, Dr. Tom Tu, uh, CMO, sitting on the right there. And then we have Tara Dunn, VP of Clinical Marketing Market Access, uh, joining us from uh, New Glasgow, Canada. Um, so welcome, guys, and thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks for having us, Jack. So maybe to kick things off, Bill, and I'm going to direct this uh, question to, to you to get things started. Uh, really, you know, it's easy sometimes to look at all the success that Inari is currently having, uh, the successful IPO, and overlook, you know, the early challenges and the things that you guys went through to really get the technology uh, going and you know, trying to get it established. So you're fond of saying that we're only just getting going and treating uh, patients both in DVT and pulmonary embolism. But maybe just to get us started, paint a picture of what things were like back in the earlier days of Inari, you know, 2017 timeframe and the and kind of the state of affairs of the company at that time and, and the challenges you, you were facing. Yeah, it was. Uh, there were some lean times, uh, as as you uh, you for the story. Uh, only Tara and I were here at that time. Um, we about three plus years ago, um, we were stumbling through the end of our IDE trial for PE, uh, getting good clinical results, but technically we weren't taking out much plot, and that that didn't do a whole lot to drive adoption. Uh, our second product, uh, the DVT product, Clot Retriever, wasn't uh, doing much better. Um, Drew and I, <laughs> Drew and I were masters of fundraising. We we, um, we 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 targeted 31 31 VCs and uh, all of the usual suspects on the strategic side, and we only got one term sheet. And you were the only one foolish enough to fund the company, so we really appreciate that. But we were we were we were struggling uh, badly in in, uh, in in many ways. I think we had put the pieces in place. We felt very confident we were uh, to the starting line when we could really begin uh, commercializing. But there were some very, very lean times in terms of um, our inability to get these devices to work. Uh, but we re just can't tell you how uh, appreciative we were to, to the board. There was, there was never a moment that anybody on the board or the uh, management team doubted uh, our potential to, uh, to get these products to the right spot. And they were incredibly patient along the way. And uh, you know, hopefully that, that uh, is paying off now, for, not only for uh, investors, but, but uh, mostly for our patients. Can you talk a little bit about what were the challenges at that point? Uh, is it, was it just that no one had really tried to address venous clot and the difficulties of extracting venous clot? And maybe uh, uh, maybe Tom can also weigh in here on just uh, you know the challenges of the venous system in general. But what what were, what was specifically so difficult to do to in terms of the design of the devices? You know, one of the questions I asked when I was um, interviewing for the, the job, I thought, you know, pulmonary embolism is just a clot. I mean, how difficult could it be to take out a clot? And it turns out it's really hard, uh, especially on the venous side. These, these clots are adhered to the vessel walls, right? They're, they tend to be um, older because uh, venous clot doesn't really, um, uh, you don't get symptoms in the legs until the, the clot becomes uh, flow limiting. So you get these clots that are stuck to the vessel wall. They're growing um, in and they're growing longitudinally. You get very, very large amounts of very firm clot because the older it gets, the more firm it gets. And so just sucking it out doesn't work very well. 
um, when those clots embolize and move into the lungs, um, they go someplace even bigger. So you have these relatively, relatively small um, catheters that are in very, very large vessels. And uh, you're, you're, you need to find ways to, um, uh, to, to address those unique concerns or unique uh, environment that is the, the venous system. Um, the, the most important, one of the most important um, uh, moments in the, in the company's history was when Dr. Tu, and I'll let him describe this uh, for you, he was the only one really committed uh, during our IDE to pulmonary embolism um, with, with uh, treatment with the flow treater. It just wasn't working all that well. And he pioneered a few ideas on his own, not, not as it relates to uh, our supportive cases or the way our engineers had been thinking about it. And he fundamentally changed the way we thought about PE. And that, that, that moment in the, in the company's history is one of the most important uh, inflection points that um, I, I don't think we'll see another one that's more important than that. But I'll let Tom describe this in his own words, if you like. Uh, thanks, Bill. Um, so, uh, you know, I think if we uh, rewind to uh, 2015, uh, I was a practicing interventional cardiologist in uh, the community of uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, really uh, seeing a lot of frustration treating patients with pulmonary embolism. This is a disease state that's not typically uh, within uh, the purview of cardiologists. It's really a disease that's kind of fallen uh, between a lot of different specialties. Uh, but occasionally we'd have young patients dying of this uh, terrible disease of, of an acute blood clot and uh, feeling uh, helpless with a lack of tools and a lack of ability to, to uh, really treat these patients in a way that, that I found effective. And then along comes uh, Bill Hoffman and, and this technology uh, with a real promise of revolutionizing how we approach this disease state um, you know, as a cardiologist, I'm very familiar with uh, how we treat heart attacks, and I was there for a lot of the revolutions in treatment of heart attacks uh, from what started out as a conservative approach uh, focused mostly on rest and medication to one in which an acute intervention could make these patients better almost immediately. And I thought, why couldn't we do the same for these patients dying of pulmonary embolism? And uh, the Flowtriever system really offered that uh, promise of, of treating these patients. And, um, you know, Bill sort of highlighted uh, some key observations that I made. You know, I thought they were minor uh, observations, but they turned out to be very important in enhancing the ability of the device to actually uh, uh, to, to fulfill that promise. And I'll tell you, you know, the very first patient I treated in which we, we performed this procedure uh, so effectively, and you took somebody who was literally dying in front of my eyes, and all of a sudden, they said, wow, doc, you did something. I feel normal again. I can breathe for the first time. And you can see the color return to their face, and you can see their vital signs return to normal. Uh, you know, it, it's such an inspiring thing and, and, and you know, probably a career-defining moment for me to say, I think we're on to something. This is something where I've never seen a transformation in a patient like this except for when we treat acute heart attacks. And uh, right then and there, you know, the, 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 the vision for me crystallized of how we could help the most number of patients with this uh, tool. Yeah, it's amazing to see just the stories, and you guys are always great about communicating, but just, uh, you know, the lives, the lives saved with uh, these tools, it's, uh, it's incredible. Maybe if I ask, I'd be interested in uh, both Drew and Tara to jump in here as well, because um, you both left, uh, you know, or, or transitioned from very successful uh, careers at other companies. Uh, Drew, you had been at Sequent Medical, which had a very successful exit. 
Tarot, Volcano. In those early days uh, of Inari, what, what, as you were interviewing, I'm sure you had lots of other, you know, things you were considering. What did you see in the company at that time that made you uh, want to uh, switch, you know, switch over and make the make the commitment? And as, as Bill will say, you know, become a real believer here. So maybe start with Drew with that question. Yeah, so I was familiar with uh, Anari given some of the overlap with Sequin as a sister company in a lot of ways, common investors uh, with uh, Versant and USVP, uh, Don Milder. Uh, we had common founders of Bob Rosenbluth and Brian Cox and Paul Lubach. So I'd followed Anari while I was at Sequin. I'd gotten to know Bill along the way. Um, so my first kind of box that I checked was the people. Um, I thought it was a really solid team, high caliber investors and board members. Uh, and I was really impressed uh, with Bill Hoffman as I got to know him. Um, and I think it checked a lot of the other boxes I was looking for. I was intrigued by the idea of having two uh, platforms in place, even at an early stage, and thinking about the disease state more broadly than just a laser focus on a single intervention. Um, I thought the technology was novel and differentiated. I had some sense, even then, of the size of the market and the amount of unmet need that existed. Um, and I was intrigued by the idea that we were moving from a clinical kind of value creation phase of the company to commercial and that, you know, as a commercial guy, uh, I would be front and center and be able to contribute to that effort. Um, so I jumped in in September of 17. Uh, and as Bill described, the first six months were, were a pretty rocky uh, phase, right? Neither technology was performing particularly well. We couldn't get the IDE study fully enrolled. Um, we were uh, navigating this difficult fundraising effort that Bill described. I remember the first couple board meetings, we were having them at that point probably every six weeks. Like every graph I put up in the board meeting, the, the lines were flat or down and to the right, <laughs> like two or three board meetings in a row. Um, so it was a challenging phase, but you know we, we kept after it and kept building the team. and. Um, we haven't looked back uh, since then, so no regrets. And at all. Tara, you you'd had both experiences, you know, very successful experiences at at uh, Volcano, uh, but you'd also experienced kind of the rockiness of a startup at Infraredix. Uh, as you were considering it, Inari, you know, how, what was going through your mind? How much trepidation did you have about uh, stepping back into kind of an earlier stage uh, company, and and what what made the difference for you? Sure, sure. So, so very little, uh, very little trepidation. I, I thought, uh, just to echo what Drew said, uh, we, you know, we had three co-founders that had come up with disruptive solutions where there have been tremendous unmet medical needs several times before. So you have, you know, very thoughtful engineers, a leader like Bill, and a, and a seasoned uh, series of, of investors that that were on our board. So. Those things give you a lot of comfort coming into uh, an early stage environment to try to do something that is uh, hopefully going to transform medicine. And I actually had a, the, the great fortune when I was at Volcano for, for the first three years and then, and then for another year under Phillips, I was one of four people who started our peripheral business unit. And I was responsible for our Venus franchise. So before most people even knew there was even a, a real thing in Venus, right? The disease state has, has been around forever, but there have never been purpose-built tools. And therefore, just the, the, the overall opportunity to serve patients certainly wasn't readily recognized uh, before. And 
I, I got to see firsthand patient suffering and a recognition that, my goodness, if, if you could come up with a way to find the right solutions here, it would help a lot of people and certainly you could build a, a formidable business around it. So for me, it was uh, it was really easy and, and, and fun to get your fingerprints and a lot of things so early on. That's, you know, that's good advice. By kind of looking around at, uh, you know, trying to find the next big thing on some of the different things to consider and, and look for at, at, um, at some of these emerging companies. Um, Bill, you know, one thing that I, that I'm, I referenced earlier and, and you say a lot is that we are in the early stages of treating, you know, really both, I think, pulmonary embolism in particular, but also deep vein thrombosis. There's so many patients out there with DVT even that aren't being treated. But in the case of PE, you, you kind of have the difficulty of uh, these patients are showing up with different um, symptoms that aren't immediately recognized. So could you talk maybe a little bit about the challenges of this particular condition and getting more patients treated uh, than we see today? Because I, I think it's just a fraction of what we should be treating. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really tiny. Um, so for PE, there are about 400,000 patients who are diagnosed and a whole bunch more who are misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. A lot of people die, for example, uh, while they're on antibiotics. Someone thinks they have um, pneumonia. So there's, there's a lot of that challenge. But of the 400,000 who are already diagnosed, that's real um, claims data, 200,000 of them have right heart strain. That is a pulmonary embolism that has enough clot and significant enough pulmonary embolism that the right heart begins to fail. It begins to strain and then eventually fails. Uh, when patients die from pulmonary embolism, it's not uh, a lung problem, right? It's, it's because the right side of their heart literally fails. It fails to push blood past this blood clot. Um, so there's 200,000 of those. Um, only about 20,000 or so, less than 10%, get any sort of treatment other than anticoagulation. Now, anticoagulation is great. It, it prevents more clots from forming, but it doesn't do anything to address the clot that's already there. And, you know, 40 or 50% of those patients, they are never the same. These are the ones who survive. They're never the same. 12 to 14% die acutely, and a, a whole bunch more are, 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 are never the same. In, in DVT, there are about 242,000 patients who have clots in their legs uh, in the, what we call the iliofemoral region, which is roughly kind of mid part of your thigh to your belly button. And uh, only about a third of those patients get any sort of treatment other than, again, anticoagulation. So a big part of our story here is just communicating the idea um, that, that this is a, a significant disease. And I think part of the challenge is that no device, even if, if you don't have a good device to treat it, what's the point in, in, in recognizing it? We just do what we can, and, and that's anticoagulation. But now that there's a device, right, we can take the clot out, and the question becomes, why would we not do that? And there's all kinds of reasons why we might not want to do that. But uh, our role is to communicate that message again and again. And there's a, there's a self-evident nature of the clot. Um, that's why it ex it's exploded on Twitter and LinkedIn and other social media, especially Twitter. But the clot is spectacular. When it comes out, there's never a time that someone looks at the clot and says, well, you know, that probably didn't matter. No, it matters. There's just no chance that that clot doesn't make someone really sick. And taking it out makes them better. So it, it's a matter of communicating that message again and again um, and accumulating data, which Tara's doing a fantastic job. We can get to that later, I guess. But I'll stop there. Maybe other people can weigh in here. This is, um, it's, a, it's a terrific story to tell. 
and it, it really does a um, has a, a, a spectacular impact on human life, and that's a, a pretty good place to um, to build a story. Yeah, I would love to hear others weigh in on this. I mean, what what are you know we we've seen in other um, specialties. I mean, neurovascular is one you know where it took really a, a seminal trial or a couple seminal trials to really kind of set the stage for a more rapid adoption. Um, what, what are you seeing here? It seems to me to be a little bit more viral in the way clinicians are communicating one with one another. It, it, would you agree it's qu- quite different than maybe the progression of things in neurovascular? Uh, I'll jump in on that. Um, so, uh, Jeff, you know, a, a couple things. One is, um, you know, what are the catalysts for change? I think uh, you know, oftentimes people have these notions of how life could be different, but until you have that core series of, of, um, of uh, elements, you need to have uh, patients that need something more. You need to have uh, doctors who are looking for better solutions. You have to have the technology uh, available to think differently. And really, uh, we're, we're right at the cusp of that with venous thromboembolism, because all of the elements are there. It just took, uh, you know, Inari Medical to come in and and, uh, uh, take advantage of that opportunity. Um, As Bill said, the clot is self-evident. You know, when you take clots like that out of the lung in somebody who can't breathe, and all of a sudden they can breathe again, you don't need too many patients like that for patients, uh, for physicians to say, yes, this should be the right treatment. They're not waiting for clinical trials. They're not waiting for randomized evidence to move towards this because it is so obvious that it helps patients. I think uh, we are committed to generating that high-level data because uh, we know to, to build a sustainable business, we, we have to contribute to the scientific literature in a way that's very meaningful. But my suspicion is that that's going to be a lagging indicator for this, uh, this technology. I think adoption is going to be quite rapid uh, because it's so uh, self-evident. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe, Drew, you know, one one thing I think, you know, in today's environment, it it is certainly important to have something that's clinically uh, uh, successful. I mean, that is sort of the, you know, uh, table stakes, I think, for being successful. But there's many stakeholders in the system and you've got to be good. You've got to be good for the whole healthcare system. And in this case, it, it really is. It has, you know, from a health economic standpoint, from a hospital standpoint, um, this is a, um, an important procedure for taking costs out of the system. Could you, could you touch on, on some of those elements? Yeah, sure. Happy to. You're, you're absolutely right, Jeff. Obviously, we think there's an equally compelling economic value proposition that follows directly from the clinical impact that we're having. Um, the devices themselves are a purely mechanical approach to thrombectomy, so they remove large clots from large vessels without the need for thrombolytics. Thrombolytics are an expensive drug by themselves, still on patent, uh, and if you're administering thrombolytics, Those patients need to be in a highly monitored setting, usually in ICU, because of the bleeding risk that's associated with uh, thrombolytics. So the ability to remove the drug and to avoid the consequent ICU stay, that takes a lot of cost out of the system. And these platforms have been designed uh, to perform thrombectomy in a single session. So we don't need to do some work, drip the patient overnight on lytics in the ICU, come back in a second day for a second intervention, 
you can imagine the cost profile uh, that's associated with that care pathway versus our approach, single intervention, remove all the clot, purely mechanical, no thrombolytics, no ICU stay, no capital equipment uh, as well. So all that translates into some uh, very important cost savings that we're able to point to. Uh, and then we also uh, are blessed with established reimbursement for both of the two interventions. So the economic uh, profile and the economic value proposition that we've been able to uh, help uh, providers understand here in addition to the clinical impact, uh, I think has been uh, one of the reasons we've been able to move as quickly as we have uh, over the last 18 months as, as we've commercialized here in the U.S. Yeah, and Tara, I mean, we're, we're not stopping with, um, you know, kind of the current state of affairs. Uh, uh, Inari is continuing to build the clinical uh, foundation here. Maybe, I know you can't share too much, but maybe touch on some of the additional initiatives that Inari has underway. And and I, what I would be particularly interested in is, you know, enrolling a registry when, um you know, when you have products available, maybe talk about some of the challenges there and then doing it in combination with, you know, a, a pandemic going on must be particularly challenging. Talk about some of the clinical work. Certainly. Certainly. I'd, I'd be happy to speak to it. So, you know, it, interestingly, when you were talking about the stroke arena, maybe maybe I'll start there. Um, they're, they're, we can learn a lot from, from, from that disease state and what was done. So what, what was notable there is there was so much excitement when the first thrombectomy tools became available by the medical community, like, let's do an RCT so that you have definitive evidence for who to treat and who not to treat and what that looks like. And unfortunately, though, there were so many variables that were not understood that it ended up being the first study was was unfortunately unsuccessful because the 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 learning curve wasn't quite there in terms of patient selection, the type of endpoints, quite frankly, even the procedure itself. Do you you know aspirate first or put the disc in and let it soak first? So there was there 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 was such a uh, a large degree of noise as to what mattered that the New, New England Journal headline essentially, you know, read intervention for stroke doesn't work, and then paraphrasing, of course. And then a lot of patients suffered that would have had access to life-saving treatment sooner rather than later when the, the learning curve was completed to, to an extent where the right studies could be run to, to really make the right decisions. There's, there's nothing worse than um, running a study that, that gives the wrong answers for patients. And it's so hard when you're in a new arena to do it, to do that well and, and not make mistakes. So, so with that in mind and, and having the benefit of, of that information, we, we've, uh, we're, we're, we're doing our best to take as a, as a systematic approach as possible. By casting a wide net, we're running two 500 patient registries and they're as real world as possible. So we're getting the, the highest risk, massive pulmonary embolism patients and, and the intermediate risk patients all together, asking a lot of questions that will help us you know, slice and dice the data and educate along the way, and also hopefully uh, help inform the design of definitive studies uh, in the future, and, and the, the same thing for DBT. So the, the thinking is that um, there are not not just the, the considerations of the, the patients being so heterogeneous, even within DBT, you could imagine there's patients with very kind of 
subacute and chronic clot and those with acute clot. So we're, we're, we're really investing a lot of resources to try to understand that. And then what endpoints matter? Uh, there are no validated endpoints in DVT, believe it or not, despite the disease state and in, in, in some studies in the, in the arena earlier. So at, at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to uh, generate information that isn't just Anari-centric, but for the broader medical community, how do we improve care pathways so they know what patients are of highest risk, whether or not they choose Inari as the ultimate treatment option. Obviously, we're, we're studying the, the impact of acute clot removal as well as the longer-term outcomes as well, but uh, there, there's just not enough information for clinicians, and we're, we're doing our best to be systematic and, and work our way towards definitive studies. Yeah, and, it's, making, and, it's going to make a yeah. huge impact. Um, you know, one other thing I want to touch on, because, you know, the clinical results uh, are, um, you know, are outstanding, the ones that have, um, you know, been published so far. Um, but of course, it wouldn't be possible without uh, the the continuous iteration that's taking place uh, on the devices. And, you know, I've always been impressed. It seems like you guys release a new device every, uh, every quarter or every other month. Um, and Brian Strauss and his team and Eben and the regulatory team, they just do yeoman's work. What what is behind this ability to rapidly innovate? I mean, a lot of companies will talk about, you know, uh, uh, talk about it, but you guys actually do it. What 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 are some of the driving forces and enablers in that? Maybe I'll ask Bill that answer that. Bill, did you want to jump in with that one? I think we all probably have a perspective. <laughs> We to, to dive in and let our new uh, chief operating officer uh, weigh in here as well. Um, but the um, so there's a feedback loop that that um, comes from the field, right? So there's a, a, a hyper communication. It's, there's a culture of hyper communication of complete transparency and, and honesty, and the combination of that with um, with commitment to getting it right for the patient as 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 quickly as we possibly can. There's a sense of responsibility. There's a sense of urgency to get this right for the patient. So um, the information that comes back from a bad case, there's never a time when, uh, when our engineers, for example, uh, will sit and say, well, you know, that doc just doesn't get it. No, no, we don't get it, right? That's why there's a problem. And so we take the responsibility seriously to get this right. And um, in the early phases, as um, Tara described and Drew and I described, we had lots of chances uh, to iterate because nothing worked. So, but, but the, this whole culture of um, a constant iteration with feedback loop and hyper communication and, and, a, and a real commitment to getting it right um, matters. But the engineers are really, really good. And you can tell from Brian Strauss. I mean, those guys never miss a timeline and they always have a smile on their face. I don't know how, Brian is a master. And I wish he were here as well. Um, but but that that team is is really really terrific. But there's a, there's a system there's an ecosystem around the uh, around the engineers I think that that puts them in a position to act on uh, on information quickly. I think the only thing I'd add in addition to the system uh, I think it's more of a cultural um, uh, advantage as well. There, there's no um, there's a tremendous sense of humility uh, with the R and D team. Um, we iterate we uh, expect we've made an improvement, we see how it performs in the market, and if it's not achieving the results, we pivot and move on. I think that stands in contrast to what I've seen, uh, you know, in some of my previous experience. I can think of one example uh, relatively early on with the Clot Retriever platform, 
Uh, we thought the length of the bag uh, was too long, and they came up with an iteration that would allow for a variable uh, component, and they could flex the length of the bag. Um, and we discovered, you know, pretty early on that that iteration was um, too complicated. The ease of use just wasn't there. Was not performing the way we'd hoped. And instead of pointing fingers, well, you know, the field team isn't training the docs right, or it's the user error, or we just need to give this more time. Uh, we quickly pivoted, and they came up with a completely different approach to that same problem. There was no ego. There was no, um, you know, kind of clinging to the previous iteration. We just quickly moved on and, um, you know, moved on to the next thing. I, I think there's a culture element there uh, that's really helped the speed at which we've been innovative uh, with both platforms over time. And Tom, from a as when you were back in the clinic, I mean, you were interacting with lots of different uh, companies. And, you know, I'm sure that you're seeing lots of innovative companies. Did something stand out to you about the way Inari approached uh, development? Sure. Um, as an interventional cardiologist, um, you know, I work with device companies, um, you know, in lockstep to help uh, uh, develop devices for patients. Uh, prior to Inari Medical, however, I have never once had the desire to join one. Um, and that's because uh, I never felt that there was that right combination of factors, except with Inari, right? What, what are those things? One, it's an important disease state, something in which, uh, you know, lives are on the line. Uh, number two is uh, transformational technology, which we definitely have with FlowTriever and CloudTriever systems. And then lastly is the team. And uh, the team matters a lot. There's a lot of trust that has to uh, 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 occur amongst team members to really have uh, the best effects. And, and you know, there, uh, this team is, is stronger than any that I've seen before. And, and it was a no-brainer for me uh, when offered the chance to, uh, to join. Um, specific to your question about uh, device iteration, I'll tell you, um, every company says that a physician's opinion is important. We, we listen, we care about what you have to say, but if you actually look at what they do with that information, you know, it's, it's highly variable. Um, I would say uh, one thing that, that, that's very telling about the Inari medical culture is that there's nothing that gets this leadership team more excited than cases. You know, we can see all of the commercial numbers and all of the productivity and all of that, but when there's an exciting case happening, everything else drops and that's the most important thing because we know that's how we help our patients. We make our devices better through the insights gained from, from that kind of interaction. And that is uh, really something that is, uh, is critical to the success of this company, I think. Yeah, and I think this is a good segue into the topic of culture, which I want to explore a little bit. And in particular, you know, the ability to sustain culture with a rapidly growing company, you know, I've, and it just has sort of astounded me the way Inari has been able to not only grow, but even in, it seems to me to improve the culture as you've grown. And so maybe, Bill, if you want to... Uh, start with that question is, you know, this company has grown from, you know, a handful of employees to multi-hundred employees in a pretty short period of time. What's been the key to holding the culture and, and as I said, even improving the culture over that type of expansion? Yeah, look, there's a number of things, and I'm sure everybody here will have uh, their own uh, take on this, but 
it starts with uh, a mission, a cause, a purpose, right? This has nothing to do with business, right? And, and I think uh, our bankers during the IPO were a little bit, they cringe a little bit when we tell investors, as we told you and our, our board, that this is not about shareholder value. It's not about making money. It's about just getting it right. And if we get it right for the patient, great things happen for uh, revenue and for dollars and, and ultimately for shareholder value. But it's not the goal. And I think that really matters. So people, people want to commit themselves to something bigger, uh, bigger than themselves, bigger than business. And we have a selection bias, even the way that we go about our interview process. And perhaps Drew can talk a little bit more about that. But we're looking for people who want to commit to something um, more important. As I share with anyone who will listen, and you know, a lot more, many, many times for those who won't listen. But um, this isn't what we do, right? This is who we are. I, I listened to your uh, your podcast uh, with Joe Army, which was terrific. I don't know Joe. I'd love to get a chance to meet him at some point. He said. One of the quotes he had was that there's no such thing as a work-life balance, there's only life. That resonated a great deal. I mean, I, that's true. This, this, isn't, this isn't what we do. This is who we are, and it's pure joy to be surrounded by people who, who care in, in that way. Um, we do our very, very best to connect every single person in the company with the extraordinary impact on, on human life that these devices have. We tell the stories. We share the cases. Nobody here is just accounting. Nobody is just building stuff. We're not just doing quality work, right? We're impacting human life, and it's really important to make, make sure that the, the communication um, and the transparency is, we talk about hyper-communication and ultimate transparency. And there's things now that we can't do as a public company, just you know, material non-public non information and so forth. But most of what we have always done remains intact, and it always will, because it's really, really important. What we're doing, the mission matters. What do you say, Drew? Yeah, I think that's well said. I think you uh, you hit all the high points. We've been, you know, to your part of your question, Jeff, was how we've maintained that, you know, in the, in the face of this rapid growth. And I think um, we've been really aware of it and really deliberate and intentional about trying to maintain um, that culture and those um, kind of patient focus and case focused uh, orientation, uh, particularly as we move through the IPO. And all the distractions that that event uh, afforded uh, for the, the business, we remained hyper focused on doing the same stuff we'd always done, on keeping it um, grounded in patients and the impact we were having day to day, case by case, doc by doc, patient by patient. Uh, and we really tried to frame the IPO as ultimately a financing event, um, which involved you know a small group of us, you know working on the side, but we were really deliberate and intentional. Uh, about not letting that be a distraction and remaining focused on the um, the same things we'd always done from a cultural standpoint as we grew, you know, quarter after quarter, month after month, and even all the way through the IPO. Yeah, and one thing that's just impressed me so much with Inari is that, you know, it is sometimes easy for management teams to sort of settle for you know, be players as opposed to really uh, attracting and, and getting the A players. And I think that's probably due to many factors, some obvious and maybe some not so obvious. But the, you know, the ability for the Inari team to continue to surround themselves with A players is, you know, is, is I think one of the keys to success. And maybe Tara, a question for you, because you've gone about building your clinical team what are the things that you look for as you've looked to build that team 
uh, you know, to make sure someone is the right fit for an RE and, and, uh, and, you know, set up to succeed, but also set up to really add something. Certainly, certainly. So I, I think it all comes back to what, what Bill said. It's, it's finding the right people for the team, people who are, uh, you know, really, really committed to the, the intensity and the problem solving that, that needs to occur to do this well. So it's a certain mindset. And obviously, there's, there's certain capabilities that, that are inherently required. But, uh, you know, I often think of um, our, our VP of sales, John Burrell, often uh, points out the Miracle on Ice movie. I think he just wants to tease me because Team USA won and not Canada. But, but uh, in, in, in that movie, uh, Herb Brooks, was heavily criticized by by USA Hockey at the time for uh, taking or cutting kind of the Wayne Gretzky of hockey, uh, if if you will. And for us, it's it's not finding the single best person at data analysis or the single best person at running a randomized controlled trial. It's let's find the right mindset and problem solvers with the right capabilities and uh, quickly identify problems, pivot when we make mistakes quickly, and, uh, and then just, just move forward uh, from there and just really trying to make it fun, right? Like, let's not take ourselves too seriously. We're, we're always laughing and, and having a good time, and then you know, you, it just doesn't feel like work because you're doing something really important. So, so that's our, just, our, our general philosophy, and we, we talk regularly, as Drew said, about just how to maintain that, and I think it comes across when we interview folks. I think they feel that from us, and you can pretty quickly tease out if it's if it's going to be a good fit or not. Yeah, and and Drew, you know, one of the things is you know the sales force has expanded. I mean, I hear many companies saying, well, you know, there's always going to be churn in the sales force. You know, the bottom ten or twenty percent are always going to turn over. Well, gosh, I'd be amazed if uh, you've had you know anywhere near that in an R. It seems like you retain almost a hundred percent, and they're all high performers. So, from a sales force and a sales force construction standpoint, how is how have you been able to you know uh, do that? Yeah, so we've been really deliberate uh, about how we've gone about recruiting and retaining and onboarding uh, the sales team. And the process we're using is, is a process that Bill and John Burrell, our VP of sales, have developed over the course of the last, well, decades. Oh, many, many over. decades. Many, many decades. Uh, and the process, um, you know, certainly it solves for identifying folks that have the requisite clinical and technical skills and sales skills to be successful uh, at an RE. Uh, we certainly identify folks that have successful track records in previous, you know, innovative uh, device sales jobs. But much more importantly, much more importantly, it's a process that we've designed specifically to allow candidates to really self-select themselves into this mission orientation, to really demonstrate to us in the, in the course of our interviewing process that they share uh, this sense of mission for changing the standard of care for this huge patient population with these dramatic unmet needs. So as we execute that recruiting process quarter after quarter, what emerges from that is a group of people that certainly have really good clinical, technical, commercial skills, but much more importantly, it's this shared sense of mission, this shared sense of um, commitment to a cause bigger than just you know putting up a revenue number every quarter, uh, and that, that commonality across the team, despite, as 
quickly as we've grown. I think that's uh, been you know a critical intangible factor to our success uh, and a really important um, ingredient for us. Uh, not only to where we've been you know, over the last 18 months, but um, looking ahead as well, that'll continue to be absolute critical uh, component for us to get, to get right. And Tom, I'm always curious on the transition from being you know, in the clinic um, uh, and to, uh, to the business side of things. I wonder how hard a transition that was. And, and you, know, you and I have chatted a little bit about you know, it's more of an individual sport in some respects, uh, maybe not completely, but to some degree in the clinic. And, and now, you know, this is clearly, you know, really a team uh, sport. I hope I'm not overstating that. But how was that transition from being in, uh, in the hospital setting versus being with a company? Thanks for that question, Jeff. Um, you know, uh, medical training is something that has been uh, recapitulated for, you know, 100 years. And there's a very formalized uh, way you go through first your uh, uh, preclinical and then your clinical and then, you know, your specialty uh, training. And it really solves for people who are high individual achievers, you know, folks who are able to outcompete everybody else, are able to outwork everybody else. And that is great if you want somebody who's very dedicated to doing one precise talent uh, and task very, very uh, carefully. It does not, unfortunately, solve for people who have high EQ or uh, are, are team players. And, you know, that was something that I was lacking in my uh, uh, medical practice, frankly, is, you know, there was a part of me that was really looking for that uh, team dynamic and, uh, and, and, and group spirit. So it was really a joy to, to uh, join Inari Medical and, and to be part of such a fantastic team. Uh, you know, I've learned a lot about, um, you know, taking a step back and, and uh, seeing other people's talents uh, inform me and, and, and teach me and make my game better. And, you know, to, to what extent I can offer uh, support as a team player, I've, I've, I've been very uh, fortunate in doing so. Um, I, uh, I don't know if all companies are like that. This is really my first foray into uh, the medical device industry, but I'm sure uh, happy with what I've seen here. Yeah, and, and you know, another question, Tom, because I always wonder this, and again, uh, I hope I'm not um, sort of getting it wrong, but one thing that's always struck me is in medicine, you're not really, it's not really okay to say, I don't know, or, or let me, you know, let me go ask somebody else uh, <laughs> to, for the answer to your uh, clinical question. Whereas in business, you know, we often have to say, I, actually, I don't know the answer to that. I need somebody to help. Is that, is that a big part of the tra transition or how, how much of a, a challenge is that aspect going into kind of the business side? I'm very comfortable saying I don't know, actually. <laughs> no, but uh, all kidding aside, Jeff, it's, it's true. You know, when you are uh, put up as the paragon of, of knowledge, then you um, feel this burden to always have the right answer. And uh, it's actually, uh, uh, you know, kind of a false path. Uh, if you really want to understand something fully, you have to be able to admit where you don't know or where your old beliefs are changing as a result of a changing environment. And, you know, that's a perfect analogy for what's going on with Inari Medical. A lot of doctors that we talk to feel like they know what the right treatment is for venous thromboembolism. And we come in with disruptive technology, a new way of doing things, and a new way of thinking. 
our best partners are the doctors who have the humility to take a step back and say, wow, I'm going to think differently about this because you're presenting me new information. And I think uh, the best doctors are the ones that, uh, that have that ability to change their mind when faced with new facts. Yeah. And Bill, I want to get to another topic here, which is really the transition to a public uh, company. And I know it was, you know, not the easiest of, of decisions to, to go public because, it, you know, being a private company in many ways is so much easier and it is easier to kind of maintain the, you know, the, the culture that, that we're describing. But tell us about that, the decision to go public and kind of, you know, how things have changed, either, you know, good or bad. Yeah, so, you know, for, so for me personally, I know it was never on my bucket list to, to, uh, to want to be a CEO of a publicly traded company. Um, there's there are a lot of pitfalls and uh, a lot of attention that's just, it's not really um, excited about. But, but ultimately, we, we made the decision not based on what any one or more individuals want, right? But the the idea here is 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 there's thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients not being treated, and the resource that we were able to acquire um, through the the uh, the public offering is, I mean, that's that's the key. It's transformed the way we think about the business. The number of sales professionals we hire, the number of people on Tara's team, number of people on Tom's team, uh, the infrastructure that we've been able to build for growth. Um, you just look at Clot Warrior Academy, for example. We're we are uh, we do. Tom does training and education. We think that's critical. We don't do big, noisy product launches or bag drops or you know silliness that that characterize some of uh, what I think is silliness in med tech. It's it's training and education and very deliberate approach to getting the best possible outcomes. And training and education is a critical component of that. So use Clot Warrior Academy uh, every Wednesday. We have. Tom uh, interviews someone uh, either on techniques, that's our technique series, very cleverly, or on um, other topics, insight series. And um, uh, we've been able to expand that. We will uh, continue to, um, we're going to work on uh, live cases. You know, the, the vision here is to do live case Tuesdays, that sort of thing, or live case Thursdays, and eventually work ourselves into having um, training and education in multiple uh, different settings. The, the infrastructure that we've been able to build has, has been worthwhile. Uh, but again, it, it, there, there are definitely pitfalls. There are certain things that we can't communicate that we used to. Uh, number of cases, for example. Number of cases. That's not a revenue number. That's the number of cases. That's the number of people that we help. And it's been really challenging not to communicate that with everybody because everybody recognizes what that means. Every single number is a patient, and there's a family behind that, and we can't communicate those things anymore. So. By and large, we've been able to uh, handle the, uh, the communication in a pretty um, effective way, and we've been able to acquire the resource necessary to, to grow and throw a bit more fuel on this fire because, again, um, we're about 2%. 2% of all the patients who can and probably should benefit from our devices are actually getting them. So, there's, again, there's responsibility here. So it really wasn't that difficult of a, of a decision, despite the fact that there's uh, additional scrutiny, challenges, rules, regulations, and so forth. As we come to the end here, I want to encourage uh, listeners to submit questions uh, if they would uh, like to ask a question to the team here. Uh, but while we wait for that, you know, another question kind of on that same uh, topic, um, uh, Bill, is, you know, as a, as a public company, you, you do have to shift your mindset a little bit more towards a quarterly mindset. Um, and I wonder, you know, 
to me, at the same time, you want to really keep the long term in mind and make sure you're making the right decisions for the long term. So how do you strike that balance between, you know, what maybe Wall Street is looking for on a quarterly basis and making sure you're making the right decisions longer term? Well, let's let's see how we feel in another year or two years, right? We're one quarter into this, but I, I mean, our our mindset is not quarterly, right? We are we are trying to invest. We are trying to build build the company to serve this opportunity. We're trying to serve this opportunity, trying to serve these patients, and that is not a quarterly mentality. Um, you know, I, I I hope we are able to to maintain that. You know, time will tell, right? We're we're still early in this, but I can tell you right now. No one's thinking about um, what the number looks like for you know as we as we end this quarter. Um, we're we're forced to well we, during COVID we haven't had to even set um, expectations longer term, but we are forced to think about how we want to communicate with Wall Street, and that's a different story. Right, that communication and the cadence of communication and so forth is different from actually the way that we. Uh, dedicate our resources and think about uh, what we're trying to accomplish in the long term. So, for example, we've begun to we've, we've hired a um, VP of uh, business development and strategy who's you know working through training right now. Kevin Strange, he's terrific, and um, so we're going to work toward um, longer term view, uh, both in in the uh, the current TAM and things that are immediately adjacent, upper extremity DVTs, for example. There's any number of things that that might come of that, but but we're not we're not just focused on how we're going to make the next number how we're going to um, increase the sales organization next quarter, right? These are very much longer plans. And um, it's, it's again, it's part of this mission-driven mentality that I think uh, all, the, all the team members have. Question we've gotten here from the uh, audience is, uh, what, what have been the changes uh, that have occurred as a result of COVID to your business? And what changes do you think will, will persist, I guess, beyond uh, COVID? Yeah, I'll start. Everybody can dive into this one. Every single part of the business has changed, right? The way that we um, train our physicians. Uh, Tom can talk a little bit about Clot Warrior Academy. We we transitioned from a model that was, um, you know, conventional uh, dinners at night, you know, three-week planning, four-week planning to get everybody around for a, um, a three-hour dinner with glasses clinking and all the distractions and so forth. We're doing those now uh, eight or ten times a week. We do Clot Warrior Academy. We converted our live, what we used to call advanced users forums, you know, meet on a Saturday morning in, you know, whatever city with uh, ten doctors and Tom plus a couple of faculty members talk about techniques and so forth. We're doing probably five to ten times more of those now than we would have been if they were live cases or live uh, instances. Um, the way that we train our sales professionals, um, everything about the uh, the way that we ha have organized our office here, almost every part of the business uh, has changed. But we made a commitment right at the very beginning of uh, COVID that we we're going to take care of our patients and we're going to take care of each other. Right, so we had no layoffs, no furloughs, no um, you know cut work weeks, that sort of thing. We kept people whole in the field, and these things really, really matter. Right, taking care of people while we take care of our patients is a critical uh, component. Lots of other um, lots of other examples. Tom, you want to talk a little bit more about this from an education and physician sure. interaction? Happy to. Um, so, you know, just as a, a introductory comment, I'd say there's nothing like a global pandemic to really test uh, the the uh, metal of your team, of your organization, and, and and your processes. And you know, I dare say, Inari Medical really rose to the challenge thanks to Bill's leadership. You know, he set the tone right from the start. 
exactly uh, what we needed to hear, which is we're going to take care of our patients and our people, and you know, actions speak louder than words. And 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 I think that really uh, bolstered morale when there was a lot of uncertainty in um, in our space. Um, very quickly, we had to pivot from a very traditional kind of uh, interaction with uh, physician customers uh, out in the field to one in which it was all virtually based. And uh, we were able to leverage you know, easily acquired technologies such as these platforms here that you're seeing uh, to be able to reach our customers in a way that perhaps uh, no one had really done before uh, uh, to this extent. And once it worked, we committed to a very aggressive cadence that, hey, we found something not only that's a reasonable substitute for what we were doing before, but actually in many ways superior to what we were doing before. And so we committed uh, very aggressively to a cadence, to um, uh, devoting resources to this, and uh, took advantage, frankly, of a lot of idle time that physicians had because they were idled by COVID as well. And so built a lot of uh, viewership and, and loyalty for our, our communications as a result of that. These will th are things that will persist even uh, in the yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And I think that's th that whole process has been one of the biggest uh, changes for the better. I mean, you hate to hate to ha have it happen as a result of the pandemic, but I do think we're going to see some good things come out of it. Um, maybe to wrap up here, you know, one thing I, I'm hopeful that we're that ent uh, many entrepreneurs have tuned in to listen to this. And you guys each, you know, have had a lot of experience with, I mean, maybe except for, for Tom, this is your first company, but but um, uh, Bill, Drew, and, and Tara, you've each had the chance to be with several companies see, and seen where it works, seen where there's challenges. What, it, as, you, as you think about entrepreneurs who are out there trying to get their company funded, trying to get their product uh, established. Are there some, I know this is probably worthy of a whole nother session, which we don't have time for, but is are there some some key things that you guys really kind of live by that, you know, you think other entrepreneurs really need to bear in mind as they, as they go about trying to get, you know, trying to advance their technology? Maybe I'd love for you each to comment, but maybe start with Bill. Yeah, I, I think if I, if I could say just just one thing, maybe maybe it's two. Uh, again, it's this commitment. You, you've got to find something you are passionate about, right? Find a, a cause that, that matters. My dad died from a PE, uh, you know, 21, 22 years ago, and I stumbled into the founders of this company just after we sold my last company to Medtronic, which was terrible. I didn't want to sell that company, and it. it you know, it, it's, things work out in, in strange ways, but I, I could not be have been more thrilled to find something that matters to me, right? It mattered to me that that, that these patients is not a benign disease, and that's what everyone was saying at the time. Um, I would say that's that's one thing, and the second thing I would say is, um, for me, I, I, I don't want to be involved in in, in um, building something to sell it, right? That's I, I recognize that this is capitalism, and some of these things do get sold, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the goal, I think a lot of things get lost, corners get cut. We never, ever thought about um, trying to um, cut a corner here to make these numbers look better or conserve cash. 
um, at the expense of you know product development or a clinical trial or that sort of thing. So we 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 built this concept to last to to be um, again to to commit to a mission rather than just trying to make money on an exit. So those are the two things that I would say. <clears throat> and I'll add maybe one from my side that I've learned certainly here at Anari. Um, you know, I think people look at our success here over the last you know six months, particularly since the IPO, and they, they call it like an overnight success. And it's you know a seven year, <laughs> seven years in the making overnight success, right? Uh, so you know, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, the day in and day out commitment to execution, to grinding through the ups and downs, to um, working together as a team to solve problems and come up with solutions and move the ball forward day in and day out, even in, you know, phases where it was, was really tough and there was a lot of headwinds. Um, you know, I think that's certainly a lesson I've seen uh, loud and clear here at Anari. It's something I, I saw at Sequent and in previous uh, jobs as well. So I think, you know, that's one thing I'd point to that I've, I've seen over the last three years. Karen, Tom, any uh, any additional pearls? Certainly, I, I would say uh, the, the the couple of other things, and, and I think you know Drew, Drew touched on one of them earlier in, in our discussion. The the humility and willingness to identify mistakes early and pivot. It's it's so easy to keep trying to make something work, and rather than going back to the drawing board, and and uh, a, a lot of folks stumble in that way, and and. Having the, the willingness to be flexible is, is critical, and then I, I can't I can't emphasize more the, the the lack of hierarchy and swim lanes. When when you're small and hungry, you just all figure it out, and you talk together. Drew Drew and John aren't telling me to butt out of you know sales and, and Eric marketing. I, I have an idea. I'll bring it up if they have an idea for and and it's this beautiful thing because you just kind of work together, challenge one another, and, and solve problems. And, and that hyper-communication is, is uh, exciting and, and critical, I think, in, a, in an entrepreneurial environment. Uh, I'll, I'll finish up Maybe with a, a brief comment, uh, if that's okay, Jeff. Um, you know, all devices sound reasonable out of the gate, right? There's a lot of great ideas out there. Um, but we know that most of them don't work right out of the gate. You have to iterate, you have to struggle, you have to finagle, and sometimes you have to pivot in a totally different direction. But the thing that's really important is, is to keep an eye on the mission, right? If the mission is valuable, then it doesn't matter how much hard work it takes to get to uh, a successful product. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't believe that any of these products are particularly you know, genius right out of the box. They, they have to be tinkered with and, and perfected over time, and that takes a lot of hard work. Well, I think that's a great uh, way to end uh, the session today. You know, this is truly, you know, Inari, I think, is one of the most extraordinary companies out there um, because of the impact you guys are having on patients every day. And you think about all the patients and the families that have been impacted by your technology. It's really um, you know, it's really what it's all about uh, for us as investors and for you guys as, as you know, really the, the drivers of this, um, of, of this new paradigm. So I can't thank you enough for taking the time today. Um, and it's just been a pleasure to be associated with you guys over the last uh, many years. So um, thanks again. And I hope everybody enjoyed this, uh, this discussion series. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, guys.